Welcome to Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. My name's Andrew, I'm one of the pastors here at Oak Ridge, and we are so excited to have you join us today. So grab your Bible and then your iPad, a notebook, pens, pencils, whatever it is that will help you get the most out of today's sermon, and please enjoy our Sunday message. It's kind of neat behind the scenes to watch how the Lord knits together a meeting like this because we're just people throwing elements together it seems like some weeks and then you experience the meeting on a Sunday morning you just see the Lord's hand all through the time whether it's the songs chosen the prayers prayed things like baptism and announcement that surprises I'll be honest when I came to the text that I was scheduled to preach this morning in first John it was about sin it is about sin I'm thinking oh boy you know, we have a baptism, we have really an announcement that is surprising, but also celebratory. We have a lot of wonderful things happening, and this guy's going to come up and talk about sin. How does that fit in? Right? But thankfully, Lori broke the seal for me a little bit, and then, and then Charles came up and talked about sin as we come to the table. And so we are still going to talk about sin, but the wonderful thing about talking about sin is that we can't fully celebrate the grace of God unless we understand the depths of our sin first. So yeah, it might be kind of bad news, and it is bad news, but at the same time, it's the foundation off of which we jump and celebrate at the same time. And so hopefully that's what we'll find this morning as we come to 1 John chapter 3. If you have a Bible with you, you can turn with me to 1 John chapter 3, near the end of the New Testament, and right in the middle of that small letter. As I said, this morning we're going to talk about sin, and more specifically, we're going to talk about the Christian and sin. How can it be that we who belong to Jesus still resist him? How can it be that we are both redeemed and rebels? How can we be called both sinners and saints all at the same time? How can we be indwelt by the Holy Spirit? We are the temple of the Holy Spirit and yet grieve the Spirit in the same day. What a walking contradiction we are at times. How can it be these two things exist? And there are times when Christians and churches want to run away from that truth and kind of minimize sin. In some ways, capitulating to a culture around us that, that basically allows for anything, and the church kind of goes that direction and starts thinking of sin as more of empty calories than cancer. Something we can enjoy in moderation, but not something to fear and to fight. And as Christians in churches, we need to be cautious of swinging that pendulum. Because when we come to the Bible, even a cursory reading of the Scriptures, we find that sin is a very big deal, isn't it? Sin is a very big deal. For those who have never trusted in Jesus, who have never believed in Him for the promise of everlasting life, sin is what separates them from a holy God. But it's still a big deal for Christians. For those of us who are in Christ, who have trusted Christ, we still have to battle sin. So how do we do that? And let's be honest, there are times, if you're like me, I don't want to project onto you, but there are times when sin seems overwhelming. It seems like I'm losing more often than I'm winning. What do we do in those instances? We're dealing today with the Christian and sin. And it's a tough topic, and we find as we come to 1 John chapter 3, it's a passage that is appropriately tough because we're dealing with a tough topic. And so my attempt this morning in the time I have before you today is I want to simplify this passage as much as possible. And right from the outset, I want to tell you what this text says. It's saying this. 
Christians who want to abide in Christ, and we've talked about that through 1 John, there is believing in Christ for everlasting life, and then there is abiding in Christ, living with Christ, walking with Christ, feeling his power and his presence. That's what we want. We don't want to just be saved. We want to enjoy intimacy with the Almighty. That's what we want. And for Christians who want that, here's what this passage is going to tell us. They must avoid sin by looking to Christ. Simple, right? See, the passage isn't that hard. Avoid sin. How? By looking inside and and finding all those sins and killing them? No, 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 no. That's not what the Bible says. We want to avoid sin. We want to kill sin. We want to fight sin. We do that by taking our eyes off ourselves and locking them on Christ. That's what we're going to see in this passage. That's it. That's the whole passage. So let me read this text for us, and then we will unpack it together. Because as I said, it's a complicated topic wrapped in a complicated text this morning. 1 John chapter 3, the first nine verses is what we'll read. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, Make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. It may be tempting for us to believe that sin is not that big of a deal. In fact, as I said, many Christians and many churches do take that approach. It's really not that big of a deal. I read a study earlier this week that said 69% of self-professing Christians agree with the statement that, yeah, most of us sin a little bit, but we're basically good people. The same percentage of those respondents, about 65%, disagreed with the statement that sin deserves eternal punishment. How do we summarize that? This is people who claim to belong to Jesus Christ, who actually believe that Jesus died for a bunch of pretty decent people who deserve nothing more than a slap on the wrist. See, sin is not that big of a deal. That's the danger. And as a church, and as we read the Bible tethered to the Scriptures, we see, no, no, that's not true. Sin is a very big deal for those who don't believe in Christ, but also for those who do. And we see in this text that we just read together that it's a big deal, and John puts a few reasons before us. First, sin is a big deal because it is anti-law. You notice that in verse 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. We need to understand that sin rejects all law and is in flagrant opposition to God. Sin is anti-order. 
It is anti-creation right from the beginning. It seeks to destroy. It is anti-life. God brings life, sin tears it down, and brings death. It is anti-law. On October 7th of 1969, the Montreal Police Department went on strike. The next morning, one newspaper reported what happened following that strike. It said this, Fires, explosions, assaults, and a full-pitched gun battle kept Montrealers huddled indoors as the reign of terror brought the city to the edge of chaos and resulted in the call for the army to help. Hundreds of looters swept through downtown Montreal last night as the city suffered one of the worst outbreaks of lawlessness in its history. Hotels, banks, stores, and restaurants had their windows smashed by, like this, by rock-tossing youths. Those youths. Thousands of spectators looked on as looters casually picked goods out of storefront windows. Despite what some believe today, lawlessness is never good. It's never good. Humanity does not thrive under anarchy, and God wants humanity to thrive, does he not? That's why he gave us guidance. That's why he gave us his word. He gave us laws because he knows that it helps us to thrive. And sin destroys that because sin is anti-law. And so John says, avoid sin. It's not good for you. He also says here that it's anti-truth. Verse 7. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. We know, and if you've been studying this passage with us, this book with us, that John has already mentioned the risk of false teachers seeping into the church and, and leading God's people away from God and away from the light. And we know from the Gospel of John, the same author, that Jesus majored on truth. He said that I am the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? And then he said, I'm spending, sending you the spirit of truth, and he will teach you all things. Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Truth is a pretty big deal to Jesus. But earlier in that same gospel account, he has a run-in with the religious leaders of Israel, and he says this to them, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He, speaking of the devil, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. See, sin, it opposes truth. And since God is truth, sin opposes God and stops us from enjoying him. It stops us from growing in him and being used by him. So we see in this passage that sin isn't only anti-law, it is anti-truth. And so John says, stay away from it. Avoid it, Christians. Third, Sin is anti-goodness. Verse 8 is chilling. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. Let's think about the beginning, shall we? God created the heavens and the earth. What did he say? It's good. It's good. It's good. It's very good. And then chapter 3, verse 1, hiss. The serpent sneaks into the garden and tears down that goodness, soils that goodness. Sin is anti-good. We need to understand that when Christians sin, we are actually acting more like the enemy of our souls than the Savior of our souls. We're acting more like the devil we've been saved from than the Savior who saved us, who is the embodiment of good. It's tragic. 
Sin mimics the devil, the author of sin. God is good, sin is anti-goodness, and so we're to avoid it. Now finally, ultimately, and most fundamentally, here's really what John wants us to realize about sin and why Christians should avoid it. It all culminates in this, that sin is anti-abiding. It's the opposite of abiding in Christ. Living in sin and abiding in Christ are polar opposites. You cannot do both at the same time. In fact, really, this whole passage is set up to declare this truth. Even just scanning the text again that we read, you see this this all-encompassing language he uses. Verse 3, and everyone who, verse 4, everyone who, verse 6, no one who, verse 6 again, no one who, Verse 9, no one who. It's the same phrase that John uses five times, and he's doing so using this all-encompassing extreme language to create a contrast, to create a contrast between two opposing groups, and more specifically, the ideals of those groups, the people who represent those groups best. And we do this too. Let me give, perhaps silly, but a, a common example maybe. This is what we might say. We might say something like this. Everyone who cheers for the Maple Leafs is an optimist. You know? Everyone who cheers for them is an optimist. No one who cheers for them cheers for Montreal. Everyone who doubts Toronto is joyless and dead inside. No one who is born in Ontario loves the Canadians. See what I did there? I I used this all-encompassing language to create two contrasting groups and the idealized persons of those groups. You're either a die-hard, always optimistic, joyful, and enlivened Leaf fan, or you're loyal to the Canadians. It's one or the other. You cannot be both. Now, in reality, is there a gray area between those two extremes? Of course there is, as people grow in their fandom. You know, they, they move from side to side. But what I've done by using that language is I've created two contrasting extremes to pull you from one side to the other. Maybe you're on the fence and you're not really sure. Well, I present those two extremes and it motivates you perhaps to move toward one or the other. This is really what John is doing in this passage. He's created a contrast between those who abide in Christ who love him and walk with him and know him intimately, and those who sin. Two contrasts, and those who sin are what? They're anti-law, and they're anti-truth, and they're anti-goodness. These are opposing realities that John sets up. And it's perhaps most pronounced in verse 6 of our text. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Now hang on a second. Is it true that Christians never sin? No one's nodding. Okay, so we're all on the same page. Christians do sin. In fact, in this same book, he's already said that, hasn't he? Chapter 1, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. John's not contradicting himself a chapter or two later. It's not like he forgot what he wrote. No, he's creating these contrasts. And if we don't understand that, it's very confusing. I sinned. Maybe I don't belong to the Lord. That's the danger here. I've, I've sinned several times this week. Maybe I don't even know him. That's not what John is talking about here. He's creating two polar extremes to pull us from one side to the other. Verse 6 particularly is a strong contrast, and it sits atop what he's already said. We need to understand that one of the disadvantages of, you know, going through a book like we are, 
Sunday after Sunday and breaking it apart, like we kind of have to do, right? Unless you want a really long sermon, I do the whole thing in one. But no one wants that. So we break it apart necessarily. But one of the disadvantages is we, we lose the sense of continuity. This is one presentation John is writing. And so what he just said here, set up this contrast, it sits on top of all he's already said. Let's just remind ourselves what he has said here in the first two chapters. John has said, those who abide in Christ, they know eternal life. They walk like Christ. They bask in Christ's light and love. They obey Christ. They are controlled by the word of Christ. They love the gospel of Christ. They are taught by the spirit of Christ, and they long for the coming of Christ. That's what defines someone who abides in Christ. And someone like that, John is saying, someone like that doesn't sin. Someone like that does not sin. Why? Because sin is the opposite of these things. Sin is anti-abiding. How can we be aching for the coming of Christ and still walk in sin? There's an inconsistency there. How can I be taught by the Spirit of Christ that lives within me and walk in sin? There's an inconsistency there. They are against one another. Second half of verse 7 creates this contrast again. It says, The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he, Christ, is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. See, Christ is righteous. Christ is law-abiding and truth-speaking and goodness-defining. He is all of those things, and the devil is none of those things. And each day, every moment, I don't know about you, but every moment I have to decide who I'm going to follow. Am, Am I going to follow Christ, or am I going to follow the one opposed to Christ? We can't turn right and left at the same time, nor can we abide in Christ and walk in sin at the same time. Verse 9. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. This is a tough verse. Uh, But in light of the context, it seems to me to be saying that since a Christian is born of a sinless parent, John 3, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. We must be born from above. We are born of a sinless parent. Because of that, we should live consistent with our now perfect DNA. We've inherited a new nature from God in that new birth. We should live according to that. And he says here, his seed, which abide in us, abides in us. That could be either the Holy Spirit. Does the Holy Spirit abide in us? Yes. It could be the Word of God. Does the Word of God dwell in us richly? Yes. I'm not sure which one it is, honestly. But either way, it's a divinely bestowed upon us implantation for the purpose of pursuing Christlikeness, leaving sin. Either way, the Spirit The word is so that we can walk in sinlessness. And if we lived lives consistent with the purity of our Father, His Spirit, and His Word, it would be impossible for us to sin. It would be. Because the two are incompatible. And this is an ideal picture of the Christ abider. Remember these two extremes. Here's a picture of the ideal Christ abider. The problem is we're not ideal. That's the problem. Like we read this and say, I want that. I don't want to walk in sin. I want to do exactly what you're saying, but then I look at my real life. I look at the week in the rearview mirror and I say, oh, never mind. Try again next week, I guess. Never mind. Try again next week. Never mind. We have these two extremes. You think, you know, the extreme Montreal Canadiens fan, Leafs fan. You know, are, are there Leaf fans who aren't optimistic? Yeah, maybe a few of us, you know. Are there Canadian fans who were born in Toronto? Yeah, probably. We live in a less than ideal world. That's how it is. More seriously, do believers sin? Yes. We saw that. Chapter 1, verse 8. Do Christians practice lawlessness? Sometimes. Well, when we sin, we do. 
Do we, do we step into deception at times? Yes. He wouldn't have to warn about being deceived by false teachers if we didn't. Do Christians act evilly like the devil? Yeah, sometimes we do. I don't know if you've read 1 Corinthians lately. Man, that church was all over the map. He actually writes to them. He says, I wanted to write to you as mature believers. I couldn't, though, because you behave like the world. I can't even tell the difference sometimes between you, brothers and sisters in Christ, and the world that you're supposed to be ministering to. You look the same. And in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, he says, and there's a sin in your midst that even Gentiles are staying away from in the midst of the church. So can Christians do all those things? Yes, we can. That's where it gets so complicated. So John here in 1 John 3, he creates this contrast to highlight the tragedy of this inconsistency. To show what's at stake and to call believers away from that inconsistency and toward the light. Toward abiding in him. He says, avoid sin. It's anti-law, anti-truth, anti-goodness, and anti-abiding. Stay away from it. Knowing that we will fall into it. But then as Lori said in that prayer, we confess our sins and he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us all over again. So yes, we sin. We come to the Lord and say, I did it again. Forgive me. And he says, I promise to and I will. We're cleansed. If you and I want to walk with God closely and know Christ intimately and mature in him, obviously, and be used by him mightily, we must think about sin biblically. What it is, how it works, and why it must be dealt with. May it never be said of us here at Oak Ridge that we justify sin, that we explain it away. We can't do that. There's too much at stake. That we don't capitulate to a culture, that we don't do that in order to win the culture, we'll soften our definition. We can't do that. First, God has not given us that authority, and there's too much at stake. We cannot equivocate on sin either. Equivocation just means taking a definition and changing it, sleight of hand almost. I know it used to mean this, but now we're going to say it means this to appease our conscience. We can't do that. We have to call sin what it is. It's for our good. It's a very big deal. It is a cancer, and it is not empty calories. It is an intimacy-killing, Christ-betraying reality that we must run from. Now, I don't think that I'm telling you anything that you don't already know. You know, you have sat under the word of God for many, 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 many years. You know that sin is anti-Christ. You also know that it's a very hard battle to fight, isn't it? As we wrestle with sin. And so, John doesn't leave us in a lurch. He doesn't say, good luck, you know, stay away from sin, talk to you later. No, he doesn't do that. In this passage, he actually tells us how we are to do what we're supposed to do. And as I said at the beginning, we are to avoid sin by looking to Christ. And that's where he goes next. We look to Christ. That's what helps us defeat sin. It's Christ who has the power that we need to avoid sin. We don't have it in and of ourselves. We don't have it. More specifically, John tells us here in this passage to look to his first and his second coming. Look to the first coming of Christ. Look to the second coming of Christ. Fill your mind with what Christ has accomplished and will accomplish. And will avoid sin and abide in him. So I just ask a rhetorical question here. Are you battling with sin in your life? You don't have to answer. There should be a lot of nods internally. Yeah, I am. I'm battling with sin. Well, the first thing that John says, look to Christ. Look to his first coming. Look to the incarnation and what that accomplished. There is fuel there to fight sin in your life. Let's point out just a few things that he says happened at this incarnation, this first coming of Christ. First, it showed God's love for us. Look at the opening verse of chapter 3. 
See how great a love the Father has bestowed, past tense, on us. At his first coming, look at this love that was shown. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. So whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The incarnation, his first coming, demonstrated the Father's love for us. That Christ came to earth is an indescribable demonstration of his incalculable love for you and for me. The question becomes, how can I hate God's law, hate God's truth, and hate God's goodness when I see how much he loves me? That's the question. When I have my mind full of his loving demonstration to me, how can I turn around and then partner with his enemy? How, how is that possible? It's only when I take my eyes off his love for me, then I fall back into sin. Every single time. He showed this love for me while I was yet a sinner, and for you as well. So we look to the incarnation. We look to his first coming because it shows his love. Second, Christ's first coming confirmed our status as children. That same verse, verse 1, it continues, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. And in verse 2, beloved, now we are children of God. When we placed our faith in the person and work of Christ, like Rana so eloquently talked about today from that tank, when we did that, we were called children of the Most High. We are children of God. We are born of him, belonging to him, provided for by him. We are given a status, a positional reality that cannot be taken away. And sometimes we try, don't we? In our sins, sometimes we buck against that reality, but it cannot be taken away. Now, I'm not someone who follows the royal family much. Maybe you are. But I've, I've caught wind of some things here and there over the years. And one thing that is just so puzzling to me, and, and it seems a little tone deaf, I don't have the full picture, but it seems a little tone deaf to me, is when you have members of this royal family complaining about how hard they have it. <laughs> how they are victims, and how we don't understand how hard it is. And I'm seeing the thing, I'll trade. Like, I, I don't know. That doesn't make sense. Look what you were born into. But as Christians, when we place our faith in Christ, what are we born into? And then we turn around and we sin against the one who's adopted us? That doesn't make any sense. It's complaining. The first coming of Christ, we look back and say, wow, he loves us, and he confirmed our status as children of God. May we act like it. But when we lose sight of the first coming, then we start to drift back away from abiding in Christ again. Third, the first coming of Christ, it set us apart. The end of verse 1. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. In the upper room, Jesus said very clearly to his disciples, the world is going to hate you, but it hated me first. Just remember that. It's going to hate you, but it hated me first. I have removed you. I've separated you from the world. You're different. That God has set his love upon us and called us his children is, is something that the world doesn't understand and the world hates. We should expect that. We've been given and ingested the antidote to the poison that the whole world has drank. Why then would I live like I'm dying? Why would I writhe about in helplessness and in panic when I have been given the antidote? I have life in Christ. I've been set apart. And that happened at his first coming. So we need to act like it. Christ also removed our sin at his first coming. Verse 5, you know that he appeared, past tense, in order to take away sins. 
Jesus condescended to live among us, be rejected by us, abused by us, and killed by us. Why? To save us. It's amazing. That is the gospel, the sacrifice. How can I celebrate and participate in the sins for which my Savior suffered and died? It's like a pardoned prisoner refusing to leave the cell. No, I like it here. I like my one little window. I'm going to stay here. That's what we do as Christians. We've been, we've been freed from sin, and yet sometimes we just stay there. But if we look to the incarnation, we look to his first coming and say, there's power there. He's freed me. He's forgiven my sins. Fifth, Christ's first coming showed us purity, personified. End of verse 5, he said, and in him there is no sin. In Christ, he is perfect. Not only did he pay for our sins, but he modeled for us the sinlessness to which we are to aspire. We want to live like the one who saved us. And there's the picture of it right there. Walk in his steps like he walked. Finally, Jesus defeated the devil. Verse 8, second half of verse 8, the Son of God appeared, past tense, for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Yes, the enemy of our souls is powerful, much more powerful than you and I. But he is a defeated foe. And just like a wounded animal, sometimes they're the most dangerous at that moment, right? But he is a defeated foe. He is out on bail as he awaits execution, but he is still dangerous. But we need to understand that the cross beat him. The cross beat him. So why would I want to be like him? He's finished. It's a ticking time bomb until he's done. Why would I want to model my life after him? See, I look to the incarnation. I look to the first coming. I have all this ammunition at my disposal. I don't look to my own sin. That would take me, I would never leave my room. I'd be counting sin, looking at it, describing it. No, 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 no. Take your eyes off. Don't play whack-a-mole with your sin. You know what that is? That carnival game? Boom, you hit one, another one pops up, and it just goes on and on. It's futility. That's what we sometimes do with our sin. I'll take care of that lust issue. Oh, anger over here. And we go to anger, and, and it's just all over the place. Instead, lift your eyes to Christ. Look to Christ. Look what he accomplished at his first coming. That's where the power is. He showed God's love. He confirmed our status as children. He set us apart from a dying world. He removed our sin. He showed us what purity looks like, and he defeated the devil. That's pretty good ammunition against our temptation. Now, John doesn't stop there. He also points us to Christ's second coming. He says, don't just look backwards. Look forward. There's power in the second advent as well. Because it's at the second coming that we will be like him. It says in verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. Anyone else looking forward to that? This, this battle with sin is exhausting, but it will not always be. One day I will be liberated from it. You will be liberated from it because we will be like him. Yes, we fight sin today. But is the battle worth it? Yes, because one day we will actually be conformed to his image, as it's promised in Romans 8, we will, to be conformed to the image of Christ. When he comes again, we will be free from this battle. So John says, have hope. We're going to be like him. When he returns, we'll also see him, it says in verse 2. And we will be like him because we will see him as he is. You know, there is coming a time when we will see Jesus face to face. Anyone look forward to that? Anyone looking forward to looking him in the whites of his eyes and saying, thank you. I said thank you from a distance for years, but now in person, I just want to say, I love you. 
I, I adore you. Thank you for everything you've done to me. We will be able to look at him. And I don't know about you, but I want that time, and this might be inappropriate. This is how I think of it, though. I don't want him to be a stranger at that time. I want to walk with him now closely. I want to abide with him. And if that means throwing off sin so I can be like him, so when I see him, yes, I'll be amazed. I'm sure I'll be knocked to my knees, but at the same time, I know you because I've walked with you. Help me deal with sin all my life. I'm going to see you. I'm going to be like you. And finally, John says that we look to his second coming because it purifies us now. Verse 3. And everyone who has this hope of his coming fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. I've said it often, and I will continue to say it. Believers who are most heavenly-minded are the most earthly good now. It's, it's believers who are so looking forward to eternity and living in light of eternity and looking for his coming that will kill sin now because that's where the power lies. We look to Christ for the power to kill sin now and be conformed into his likeness. That's, how, that's where the motivation comes from to live purely, to please him, to model him, to show him, and to honor him. We look forward and we look backwards because that's where the motivation for killing sin is. There's a newer hymn that's recently come out called When Christ Our Life Appears. Some of you may have heard that. We'll actually sing that tonight at our music night when we gather to sing praise. But I want to read the lyrics for you now because it so encapsulates this truth. We look forward. We look forward. This life, what does the Bible say about this life? It's a vapor, right? Here today, gone tomorrow. Eternity, well, I mean, that, that's eternity. Right? That's what we look forward to. This is what the song says. When Christ, our life, appears, our hope will be complete. Our longings finally rest as we fall at his feet. When Jesus comes to reign, restoring everything, our tears will turn to tides of praises to our King. We're longing for that day when we'll see Christ. When we'll see Christ our Savior, we'll behold the glory of our King forever, Christ our Savior. Faith will turn to sight when Christ our life appears. There's two more verses, and they get better. I'll say that for tonight. He's our hope. Is sin a battle today? Yes. Was it a battle to the believers that John wrote to? Yes, it was. And he says, here are the two extremes. You can't do both. You abide in Christ or you sin. The good news is that when you sin, you confess and it takes you back in the right direction. But notice the two extremes. And to deal with that sin, don't look to yourself. Look to Christ. You look to yourself, it's depressing. We're defeated. We're weak. You look to Christ, he's victorious. He's powerful. And he's coming to get our great king. As Christians, John is telling us that we must avoid sin if we want to abide in Christ. And as daunting a task as that is, we can experience victory by looking to Christ, his first coming and his second coming. I want to encourage you, if you're wrestling with sin today, there's habitual sin you just cannot seem to get victory over. First, I want to encourage you that you're not alone. Christians through the millennia have struggled with the same thing. And that's not to minimize it, that's not to give us an excuse, but at the same time is to tell you that you are not special in that. The enemy wants to convince you that you're special, that you're unique in that way. You're not. Welcome to the club. We're all battling. But I want to encourage you, if you're battling with sin, stop looking at that sin so much. Look to Christ, the one who has conquered that sin, who loves you, who has adopted you, all of those wonderful things we looked at today. Look to Christ. 
And I want to encourage you that maybe you're walking in sin right now, and some people say, well, if there's habitual sin, you might not be saved. You might not be a believer. And, and I don't think that's at all what John's talking about here. That doesn't mean it's not true. If you're here today and you are really battling sin, and maybe you've fallen into this idea, this cultural Christianity, you go to church and so you're saved. You know, you sing songs, so you're saved. But maybe you're starting to realize that that sin, the sin that you can't get mastery over, isn't because you're not looking to Christ. It's because you don't belong to Christ. So I want to encourage you today, if that's you, if you have never spoken to the Lord and said, I'm a sinner, and I cannot do anything about it by myself, but Christ, you've done everything for me. You died on the cross for my sin and rose from the dead, defeating death, and by believing in you, you promised to give everlasting life to a dying soul. I'm believing in you now for it. That's what we're called to. And if you've never done that, I encourage you to do that today because then the victory begins. Then you have the tools you need to conquer sin. But for the rest of us who have done that, let's avoid sin. Let's kill it. Let's, let's fight it and how with the weapons the Lord has given us. And as a church family, let's be a church that takes sin seriously. Not burdened by it, not, not obsessed with it, but knowing what it is and knowing that we have victory over it in Christ. That is a church family that makes a difference in a world that is rotting away in sin. That's a church family that people will come to when they want liberty from their sin. That's the kind of people God wants us to be. Let's ask for his help for that now as we close. Let's pray. Thank you so much for joining us today. For more sermons, blogs, and other resources, you can check out our website, oakridgebiblechapel.org. To listen to our weekly podcast, Word Processing, you can go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts or any other podcasting platform. Remember, you can always join us in person or on our live stream at 10.30 a.m. on Sundays. Thanks for watching.